All right, everybody, good morning. Welcome to Lecture 4 of Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to send around our attendance clipboard if you could mark that appropriately. By way of review, last time we talked about Christian in a pivotal moment in the book. He gets through the wicked gate. He's on the path that's walled in by walls called salvation. He makes his way to where he gets to the cross, at which point he simply looks. He looks upon the cross and his burden falls away, falls down the hill into the sepulcher, the tomb, never to be seen again. And all he had to do was look. And while he's there at the cross, he meets three shining ones. And he's given the blessing of three things, one from each of them. Does anybody recall what the first shining one gave to him? Specifically said to him? He said, thy sins are forgiven. Justification. You are declared righteous simply by looking. Looking at the cross. The second one gave him what? That's third. Second one gave him a change of raiment, gave him new clothes, took off his filthy, tattered rags, and put beautiful, glowing clothes upon him. That's the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It's not simply you're forgiven of your sins, but you're given full righteousness in Christ. And then third, he's given a mark on his forehead and a roll, a scroll. Scroll being pictured, as we saw, his assurance of salvation. That testimony of the Holy Spirit, that which he would read along his journey for refreshment. That would encourage him. But then we notice very quickly, very soon after the cross, he approaches a hill. A hill of difficulty. Trials. And temptations come immediately. And he makes his way up the hill. He doesn't go astray down the path that's easier or path of destruction. He stays on the hill of difficulty. He reaches an arbor set up by the king for giving rest to those who are on the journey. He sits down in that arbor and he takes a nap. He falls asleep. And while he's asleep... His roll, his scroll of assurance, falls out of his breast pocket and he loses it. And he wakes up, he continues on his journey, but then he realizes, I've lost my scroll. And he, he panics, he bewails his condition, Bunyan says. He, he has to go back in his journey and he's lamenting all the way back. He's kind of like Paul in Romans 7. Oh, who will save me from this body of death, oh wretched man that I am? But eventually he he finds his scroll and he continues down his journey, which is where we'll pick him up today. Bunyan says, I'm on page 46, if you have the same edition as mine. Thus, he, Christian, went on his way and he was thus bewailing his unhappy miscarriage. he's, He's lamenting this little episode of losing his scroll. But he lifts up his eyes. And looked before him, and behold, there was a very stately palace before him. And this palace was called Beautiful. And it stood just off 
the highway. Christian approaches this very stately palace. This palace represents the church. He pictures the church a couple of different ways in this book. This is the first one. It's kind of the image of the church from the perspective of a new believer. Later we'll see the church from a different angle, from a more mature believer. And they're complementary. They're not, they're not opposing views. But this very stately palace um, is where Christian will gain many advantages, many encouragements on his journey. The name, Palace Beautiful, Bunyan's drawing from Psalm 48, where the Lord says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. God himself is in the palaces of Mount Zion. He is known as her refuge. This psalm celebrates God dwelling with his people. It speaks of Jerusalem, city, the the home of the temple, the sacrifices, the festivals. And it describes it as beautiful. It's God's city. Jerusalem was a, a foreshadowing, wasn't it? It was a picture of something greater that was to come. Christ himself is greater than the temple, he says. He's the king of kings. He is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He came and dwelt among us. And so when Christian sees the beautiful palace, he, he runs. He hurries to go get in. And he notices the way is narrow. It's a tight path. And in between, or on either side of the path, are two lions. Much ink has been spilled among Bunyan scholars as to what these lions mean. Do they generally mean trials and temptations, persecutions that try and prevent and scare off a believer from going to the church? Well, it could be that. I think it's more likely that these represented something in specific. The two lions, I believe, represent the state and the civil government, the Church of England of his day. Bunyan was not an Anglican. He was not in the Church of England. He was an independent, a nonconformist, they would say. They would say quite pejoratively. And not only that, he wasn't a good Presbyterian nonconformist. He was a Baptist nonconformist. He was the worst of the worst. And he... Uh, He had good reason to see these two lions being the state and the state religion, the state church. One commentator on the text says that a public profession of faith exposes a man to more opposition from relatives and from neighbors than a private attention to religion. And in our author's days, in Bunyan's day, it was commonly the signal for persecution for which he places these lions in the road on the house to beautiful. So when Christian realizes that these lions are between him and the palace, he becomes a little fearful. The text says he thinks about turning around. He thought about going home, packing it up. I'm not going to fight these lions. But the, the porter 
of the palace speaks up. What's a porter? Does anybody know? Yeah, a doorman. He's a guy. Porto, portal, door, gate, passageway. A porter is someone who attends the entryway. It could be a doorman. It could be the guy at the beginning of a, of a plane or a, or a train journey. The porter of the palace, whose name is Watchful, sees, uh, he, he, he sees Christian and he calls out to him and he asks him a question. He says, is, is your strength so small? It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Mark. It says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, it is he of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. So Christian calls out and he says, don't fear. And he tells him something that Christian didn't see at first. He tells him that the lion's As terrifying as they are, they're chained up. They can't reach you. Though Christian could not see the chains, he must trust the word of the porter and follow the counsel to stay on the path. If you stay in the center of the narrow path, you are safe and these lions can't touch you. God is sovereign over all rulers, all authorities. Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And so though these lions appear menacing, they have no power. The length of their chain is ordained by God himself. And so Christian then arrives unharmed, and he's greeted by the porter at the palace. The porter represents here a minister of the gospel. He's the watchman. He's the one up on the ramparts, looking out. He cares for the souls of the Weary, traveling pilgrims. The Lord says in Isaiah 62, I have set up watchmen over your walls, Jerusalem, and they shall never hold their peace day or night. They're always busy. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. And in the New Testament, the role of a pastor is described in terms of a watchman. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, and thus fulfill your ministry. Hebrews 13 says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out over your souls. Later in the allegory, in Bunyan's story, one of the shepherds on the delectable mountains... Which is such a wonderful name. Which is a, that's the depiction of the church from a more mature believer's perspective. So one of the shepherds up on the delectable mountains is also named Watchful. And the porter tells Christian that this beautiful palace is built by the Lord. The Lord of the hill. He built it for the relief and the security of the pilgrims. It is Christ who has built his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We could use Pauline language. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens and saint, with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Christian asked for lodging. He said, can I stay? The porter questions him. Doesn't immediately open the door and let him in. He asks him about his faith and about his testimony. And Christian professes that he fled the city of destruction. He's going now to Mount Zion. His name, he says, is Christian. But then he tells us that his name previously was Graceless. It's the first time we, we find that out. When he was in the city of destruction, we weren't told what his name was. Later, we're told he is given the name of Christian. Peter says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. You who had not obtained mercy have now obtained mercy. First Peter 2. Christian then identifies himself with some Old Testament language, which kind of may puzzle us if we're unfamiliar with some of it. He identifies himself in the line of Japheth, which is one of Noah's sons. He says in Genesis 9, 27, Noah prayed that God would prosper Japheth and cause him to dwell in the tents of Shem. We see this fulfilled, as it were, because it's, it's thought that the line of Japheth were those descendants that eventually moved north, and probably from whom the people of England came from. And so we see that prayer of Noah fulfilled as the spread of the gospel is brought near. And so the porter then asks about the the lateness of Christian's arrival. The sun is setting. The night is approaching. He says, what took you so long? Christian laments. He wishes that he had been there sooner, but he was careless. He's a little ashamed of how long it took him. He lost his scroll. He wished he had been here sooner. And here we see in Christian's confessions, one of the reasons why he needs... To join himself to the church. A new believer. He he has much to learn. He had been careless when he should have been careful. He had been slothful when he should have been sober-minded and circumspect. Yet the very quality that he realizes that he lacks. That has caused his most recent sorrow and his late arrival. Is the very quality that distinguishes the porter. The contrast is clear. The porter is being watchful. He's, he's quizzing him. He's, he's, te- he, he's pressing. He's asking questions. He's not just letting him come in. He, he's doing his job well. And Christian wasn't watchful. So he gives Christian encouragement. He gives him the counsel he needs. He tells him to press on. Christian is edified and encouraged by the porter who... Is the minister of God's word. The dialogue continues. The porter summons another named Discretion to come and interview Christian. 
according to the rules of the house. There were, there were rules. They had to be, the Christian had to be determined if he was allowed in or not. Discretion comes and questions him about his journey, about his salvation, about his testimony, about his identity. Who are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? And then he grants him access to the palace because of his profession. This is discretion here is a picture of church membership, of examination, of testimony. That's the first step into entry into a church. This is a distinctively Baptist position of the day. If you're in the Church of England, you were born into the church. Wherever you lived, that's the parish church. That's where you go to church. There's no need for this examination stuff. It's good if you have a testimony. But discretion is needed. Admittance to the palace is not open to any and all. He then moves on to talk with piety. Piety represents a personal holiness, devotion to God, earnest, sincere desire to love God and remain faithful to Him. Piety asked Christian to share about his testimony. Well, what's happened to you so far? How did you come to be a traveler, a pilgrim? She asked him specifically, where did you hear about the gospel? In the book. What did you learn in the house of the interpreter about the word of God? Asked him about salvation at the cross. When he looked upon the cross and his burden fell away. And piety's interest in Christian is, is interesting because she says... Perhaps we may better ourselves thereby, by hearing his testimony, that is. In other words, hearing of Christian's journey, how he escaped the city of destruction by faith in Christ, will strengthen those in the palace. Bunyan is saying that it's good to hear about the work of the Lord. It's good to hear about the testimony of new believers. It should be refreshing to us when we see someone baptized and make a public profession of faith. It's kind of like for those that are married, when you go to another wedding and you think fondly back on your own. You reflect upon the experience that you've tasted by seeing the reminder, hearing the vows again. Same is true when we see baptism, when we hear the testimony of another. Gospel conversation asking people you know maybe you take somebody to lunch and ask them how did you how did you come to know the lord it's an encouraging thing to hear about the goodness and the faithfulness of our lord christian then moves on to talk with prudence prudence represents kind of like watchfulness he represents the uh, <clears throat> carefulness to walk in the wisdom and the truth of the lord prudence To be prudent is to act with good judgment, wisdom, discretion. It's the practical outflowing of a heart that is wise. To apply God's word to situations in life. She asks him, if he ever entertains thoughts about his former life, do you not think sometimes of the country from which you came? Isn't that an interesting question? 
Christian used to live in a town called Destruction. But when he thinks of that place now, it is with, quote, shame and detestation. He's he's repulsed thinking about his old life, his old way of living. It's kind of like Israel. When they're asked that question, when they got to a little bit of trial in the desert, they go to Moses and say, why did you bring us back here? We had we had leeks and onions. We had food back in Egypt. Did you bring us out here to starve? They did not look back with detestation when they thought about Egypt. Christian said, no, he left that way behind and he's intent to get to a better country, he says. Which is the quote from Hebrews. A heavenly country where God has prepared a city for them. Prudence then asks him if he's ever enticed by some of the things that he was once accustomed to. Those in the city of destruction. Christian admits that he does at times struggle. The old man is hard to get rid of. He clings tightly. Sometimes in the midst of trial and temptation, we can look back and say, Boy, things sure seemed a lot easier back before I picked up my cross. I never had that burden on my back until I read God's Word. But Christian says that he truly does desire now to do what is right. He doesn't want his fleshly thoughts to disturb him, to trouble him. In fact, those things in which he once found sinful pleasure grieve him. But he acknowledges this ongoing battle in his heart. Paul talks about this fight in Romans 7. Right? He talks about the things that he doesn't want to do or the things that he does and the things that he does want to do the things he doesn't do. Sometimes evil thoughts are brought down and subdued. Sometimes there's victory. Other times they, they entangle us. They, they mess with our mind. They cloud our thoughts. They get us all messed up. Christian says to Prudence that those hours when his thoughts are free from these temptations are few, too few, but they are like gold to him. Prudence asks him about a strategy to fight against these fleshly thoughts. What are the most effective ways to vanquish this besetting sin? And Christian mentions the, the value of meditating on God's Word. Filling his mind with the truth of God. He ponders the truth of Scripture. He preaches it to himself. He anchors his thoughts with the promises of the Gospel of of the Christ, uh, the Christ of the cross. He reminds himself of the clothes that he's now wearing. The beautiful raiment that has been given to him. He remembers the cross where the burden was taken away and he was declared to have his sins forgiven. He, he remembers and he pulls out his scroll, which is the promises of God, to bolster his assurance and give him confidence. And comfort on the way he thinks 
about the destination. I mean, the journey's terrible, and parts of it are really miserable, but, but it's going to be worth it in the end. Finally, Prudence asks him, Why are you so eager to reach this destination? Why are you so eager to get to the heavenly city? Christian is, is anchored in the promises of God and aiming for that which is to come. He embarked on a journey where he understands that all of this world is not his home. It will be filled with trials and afflictions and sin and death. It will be wearisome day by day. And we, like Christian, have to remember we are pilgrims passing through. This world is not our home. Christian says he longs for the joys that await him. He longs to see Christ face to face, to see his king, to see the prince. He longs to be free from sin. He longs to have life eternal. He longs to be in the company of the redeemed. Lastly, Christian speaks with charity. Charity, not charity like you give money to charity today. Charity like love. It's a transliteration of the Greek word karitas. Charity represents compassion and love for others. Charity is highly commended in Scripture. If you've been following along in 1 Corinthians, we've been in the love chapter for a while. Paul says, Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I have not love, I'm a banging gong and a clashing cymbal. Faith, hope, and love abide, but of these three, the greatest is love, Paul says. So Christian arrives at this at this palace, and Charity notices that he is alone. Charity says, what about your family? What about your wife? What about your children? Christian tells her that his family was opposed to him leaving the city. They warned him over and over and over. They tried to tell him the danger of leaving and that he should stay behind, but he would not listen. He was brokenhearted. They rejected his pleas to come and flee the city of destruction. They mocked his efforts at even trying to persuade him. Christian quotes from Genesis 19 verse 14, comparing the response of his family to that of Lot's family when Lot warned them to flee the city of Sodom and the destruction to come. says, Lot went out and spoke with his sons-in-law who had married his daughters. And he said, get up, get out of this place. The Lord's going to destroy this city. It is a city of destruction. But to his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Stop talking this foolishness. So in the dialogue between Christian and Charity, Bunyan offers helpful lessons. How we interact with our loved ones, those who reject the gospel, those who become offended because Christian was left no choice but to leave. He knew his duty. He had to flee, even if no one would flee with him. Moving on, Christian is taken to a room in the palace 
where he can rest. That room is called peace. Sounds like a pleasant place to spend the night. And he's given a supper. He's fed. Supper full of wonderful foods. The text says that they showed him the rarities of that place. All the finest things. All sorts of things in the house. I won't read them all to you, but... They showed him the records of the greatest antiquities. They they told him the old things. The old things of the Lord. But they also take him to another place. He's taken to the armory, which is fun. They showed him all manner of furniture, stuff. They showed him that the The furniture which the Lord had provided for pilgrims, the sword, the shields, the helmets, the breastplates, all prayer, shoes that do not wear out. It says that there was enough in this armory to harness out many men. They could outfit many soldiers for the journey. As many as the stars in the heavens. The the church should be the place where Christians are bolstered in their defenses and trained in how to use the sword of the Spirit. It does no one any good to have Christians that are ill-prepared, that fumble around with the Word of God, that have ignorance of what it says, that aren't wearing the armor. Armor was a big theme in Bunyan's day. Spiritual warfare was very clear, fresh on their minds. I think it's a danger to modern man where we have science, where we think everything's provable, everything's touchable. The worldview of society is that there is nothing beyond the material. It's very easy for us to slip into that mindset. And never think about spiritual things except maybe on Sunday morning. Walk through the week never once thinking about our armor. The cosmic battle in which we exist. The warfare of this age. Get lulled to sleep. To danger. Christians then taken to see a view. Of the delectable mountains. These mountains are found in Emmanuel's land. And you would think that this is where Christian would go next. He would be in the palace, beautiful, looking to the beautiful, delectable mountains, the shepherds and the sheep. It's kind of a picturesque pastoral scene. But that's not what's next. Bunyan takes him to a different place. To a valley. To the valley called humiliation. And we see in the text that after a few days in the beautiful palace, Christian continues his journey. He sets off. And he meets the devil. He meets Apollyon. 
which is the name from Revelation 9.11. It means destroyer. Now, I'm reading from Bunyan here. In this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was put hard to it. For he had gone but a little way, and he espied a foul fiend coming in the field to meet him. His name was Apollyon. And Christian did begin to be afraid, and he was cast in his mind whether to go back or should he stand his ground. But then he considered again the armor that he had been given from the palace beautiful. He said that he had, he had no armor for his back. If he turned around and hightailed it out of there, he would be exposed. And so he thought that to turn around might give Apollyon a greater advantage and ease to pierce him with his dart. So he resolved to venture forward and stand his ground. For, thought he, had I no more in mine eye than, my, than saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. And so he went on, and Apollyon met him. And the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish. And they are his pride, the text says. But he had wings like a dragon. He had feet like a bear. And out of his belly came fire and smoke. And his mouth was the mouth of a lion. Bunyan is compiling all of the worst imagery of Scripture. We've got bits of Leviathan from Job kind of in here. We've got uh, smoke and fire, lion. You know, the devil's a lion prowling around seeking those whom, to can, who he can devour. says, when he came up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance. And he began to question him. Apollyon begins to ask him questions. And it's significant to note that in Bunyan's mind, this whole episode in the Valley of Humiliation where he is fighting with Apollyon, spoiler alert, there's a battle that comes, all of this is framed within a larger cosmic battle. Apollyon doesn't come up and say, I hate you, though he does hate him. It says a little bit later, Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage. I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person. I hate his laws. I hate his people. And I've come out on purpose to withstand thee. He's saying, I hate your boss. I hate the ruler of this land. And you are simply a pawn that I can use to get at him. Bunyan's framing all of this spiritual warfare in a larger cosmic frame. It's important to remember that we are, the battles we face are skirmishes of but a larger war, the war. But let's take note of some of Apollyon's tactics. He says, Apollyon, speaking to Christians, says, There's no prince 
that will lightly lose his subjects. Neither will I lose you. But since you complain of your service and your wages, be content to go back. What our country will afford, I do here promise to give thee. He's saying, whatever, whatever you want, I can give to you. Whatever you want from my country, from my city, my city of destruction. Whatever you want, I can give to you. He's trying to make sin look appealing. Does it remind you of any place in Scripture? Right. Matthew 4. Jesus is in the desert. Satan says, if, look, look, look. I'll, you see all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you it all if you bow to me. He tries to tempt to make sin look appealing. But then he goes on. That's not the only tool in his tool belt. He goes on and he talks about the, the trials, the hardships. Speaking of the servants of the king, he says, How many of them have been put to shameful deaths? How many times? How many times have they been delivered by power or by fraud? How many times? It goes on and on. But then he, he turns it personal towards Christian himself. And he points out Christian's own failings. He's basically saying, you, you say you're a, you're a servant of this king. But how many times have you blown it? Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service. Do you think that you're worthy of receiving your wages? It's interesting how Satan will flip things around. He will lure and entice by undermining God's law. And then when he's gotten you to take the bait and the sin is committed, he then becomes the law's biggest fan. He will entice you to break the law, and then once you've broken it, he will beat you with the law. He will con- he seek to condemn. Christian is being reminded of all the times that he's messed up. Or he didn't listen to the words of evangelists and he got off the way when he, when he lost his scroll, when he was in the slough of despond and he wasn't walking on the path given by the lawgiver. And lastly, Apollyon takes it upon himself to attack the motives of Christian himself. He says, Thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that you say and do. So you're proud. You're after your own, your own fame, your own fortune. But it's worth us noticing how Christian responds. Christian doesn't cower and run away. He thought about it, but he can't turn his back. There's no armor on his back. All of the armor that a Christian has is front-facing. Facing what Apollyon would throw at him. 
But Christians' responses, and I won't read them all to you, are noteworthy also because in every response to Apollyon, Christian speaks more of the king than of himself. Everything he throws back to Apollyon to rebuff his lures and enticements, everything is centered upon the king. And his responses, thirdly, are significant because he both owns up to his sin and he rests in the king's mercy. He doesn't try and hide and whitewash and act like, well, I'm not as bad as you say I am, Apollyon. He says, I am. In fact, I'm worse than you think, Apollyon. Christian says, when, when he's attacked by Apollyon, Christian says, all of this is true and much more. Everything is true. More than you've said, which you've left out. But the prince whom I serve and the prince whom I honor is merciful and ready to forgive. That's how we need to encounter Apollyon. Not try and ignore the sins that are exposed within us. Not redefine ourselves in light of those sins. Not... Mope around, you know, Satan's right, I, I, I actually am a sinner. No, we, we confess those sins and take them to Jesus and then trust in the mercy of the king. So after this little dialogue, the battle begins. It says Apollyon straddled over the whole width of the way, the path. He said, prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that you shall go no further. Here I will spill thy soul. Sword is unsheathed. Christian, you're going down. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and prevented the danger of it. Christian drew For at this time he sought to bestir him. And Apollyon made fast at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid them, Apollyon wounded Christian in his head, his hand, and his foot. Christian gave a little back. Apollyon then followed. He kept going, but Christian took courage and he resisted as manfully as he could. And this sore combat lasted above half a day. This wasn't a momentary affliction. He's wrestling. Christian was almost spent. Christian, because of his wounds, was growing weaker and weaker, the text says. And Apollyon, seeing an opportunity, began to close to Christian, wrestling with him. Gave him a dreadful fall, such that Christian's sword flew out of his hand. This would make a good movie, wouldn't it? Apollyon said, I'm sure of thee now. And with that, he had pressed him almost to death, and Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching his last blow... 
Seeking to make full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out for his sword, caught it, and he quoted scripture. He said, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. He strikes back with scripture. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, and he Quotes again, Scripture. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that has loved us. Romans 8. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings, and he sped away, and Christian saw him no more. Bunyan says, in this combat which no man can imagine... What yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon. And on the other side, what signs and sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. I never saw him all the while give so much as one pleasant look till he had perceived that he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. Then, indeed, he did smile and look upward. But it was the dreadfulest fight I had ever saw. And notice what Christian does. It says, when the battle was over, Christian said, I will here give thanks to him that hath delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. To him who did help me against Apollyon. It's worthwhile for us to note that the sword was Christian's key to surviving the battle and vanquishing Apollyon. And also the posture that he took coming out of that fight. He worshipped. He said, I will stop here and I will give thanks to him who has delivered me. But he doesn't just stop there. Almost immediately after. A quick little mark, which I think is significant. It says, so being refreshed, he addressed himself to his journey. He got ready, dusted himself off to get back on the path with the sword drawn in his hand. For he said, I know not, but some other enemy may be at hand. He readied himself for another attack. Satan is often very effective at taking someone who has stumbled a little bit and driving him in the dirt to hit you while you're down. And we have to be ready. If one attack is over, it doesn't mean another one is not imminent. We have to be on guard, readied for the battle at hand. I think we will probably stop there for today. Next week, we will meet some more characters. We'll meet Faithful, which will be good for us to read. But for now, let me pray for us, and then we can head upstairs. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have built your church on Christ, the beautiful palace, and that against it the gates of hell will not prevail. And that you have sent your Son, the faithful one, who battled with Apollyon in the desert, 
and came out on top. Who has himself defeated the grave. And Lord, we pray that as we have our own encounters with Apollyon, as we wrestle with the powers of this age and the prince of the power of the air, that you would give us strength and confidence in your word, the sword of the spirit, that we might likewise vanquish. That we might come out unscathed, holding the shield of faith and the sword of spirit in our hand. Help us this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.